Hello everyone, my name's Luke and welcome to Scapegoat, the podcast where we see who gets to blame and who gets away with murder, sometimes literally. In this week's episode, we're going to turn our focus to the silver screen. The cinema has long been seen as the king of media, and with the majority of movies coming from America, it's seen as a major boon for the country, as well as a great way of spreading American culture around the globe. However, there's one shadowy organisation which decides what is appropriate to see and what movies aren't appropriate to see. This is the MPAA, who has the power to cripple any movie with little or no transparency. This has worldwide consequences, as if a movie isn't seen as viable on the American market, it probably won't be made and seen in London, Ontario, Perth, Suwon. The body also has an effect on many foreign movies that aim to do well in the worldwide box office by shutting off America to them by giving them far too high ratings. So for this episode, we look into the MPAA, who decide what is appropriate for your children to see and what is not. So with most scapegoat episodes, we look at the history of where these problems came from. So we're going to start off by looking at the history of cinema. So the early film industry began in the 1890s with a number of short one-minute movies being created. So these were generally displayed as a kind of like sideshow attractive and and a bit of a novelty thing at vaudeville acts or at circuses. So you'd have some guy say, Oh, Winston, look over there. There is a man sneezing for 40 seconds. Oh, jolly good. Oh. And these people would be watching this. But, you know, you wouldn't go out to watch a movie. Just a movie would be played when you went out. But as the decade bore on, people began to make longer and longer movies. And, you know, they'd be go up to 12 minutes and they'd say, OK, let's see if we can have a 15 minute movie. And people were like, too long, too long. I'm not thinking of what Lord of the Rings would be like 100 years later. Uh, but these original viewings, apart from a few projections, were mostly as a kind of one person experience where you'd go and look at a lens and you'd watch some questionable content. By questionable, I mean normally it was questionable. It's where the term peep show comes from because you wouldn't want anyone else to know what exactly you watched on the kinetoscope. Like there's one called The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots, which basically shows the woman being executed, getting her head cut off. But at the last minute, the actress is switched for a dummy. So you see the last few frames are a dummy's head falling off. They also have one called What the Butler Saw. And as you can imagine, it would be quite saucy. Imagine me bouncing my eyebrows up and down in a very suggestive manner. Now, with most of the technology at the turn of the 19th century, the New Jersey-based inventor Thomas Edison began to quickly patent many of the components that made it up. So as Edison began to do this, he began to see he could monopolize the film industry in the United States and began to shut down rival studios' productions, either using legal proceedings or hired thugs. This caused many prospective filmmakers to leave the East Coast and head out west, where they would have a better chance of avoiding Edison's goons, because even if you did have like the patents to make up your own films, he would just send men to beat you up. As they headed west, they headed to places originally like Utah or Arizona, as they weren't incorporated states, and they believed the patents wouldn't actually hold there. But many others headed to Southern California because they preferred it due to its all-year-round good weather. California was also in the prime position of being the furthest from New Jersey, apart from Alaska and Hawaii, 
and if many of Edison's goons turned up, there'd be a lot of forewarning, because people would be saying, there's some goons coming through Illinois at the minute. So, you know, if you heard about that, what you would simply do if you were in Southern California is move your studio across the Mexican border to the other side, wait for the goons to come when they couldn't do anything, and then cross at the other way. So slowly throughout the 1910s, a lot of the Edison patents ran out because patents only really last between 15 and 20 years. Many of the studios began to become bigger and more legitimate. So many of the names that you would know began to incorporate in Los Angeles, particularly Hollywood, which was a small suburb in the north of the city. So big studios like Warner Brothers, Paramount, Columbia were all founded, as well as many studios that history has forgot, like RKO and Biograph. So the motion picture industry quickly became huge in America, becoming their fifth largest industry. Many people began to watch American films all around the world, particularly in Europe and Australia, with the notable exceptions of France and Germany, who had their own like film industries. So you'd occasionally watch American film, but... If you're going to watch a Jean Reno, well, not Jean Reno, but whoever made La Regula de Jeu, you probably wouldn't. But American movies were huge. And many stars and directors left their native countries to come to Hollywood, where the industry was at its pinnacle. And people went out to find fame and fortune, such as the Englishman, Charlie Chaplin, the Swede, Greta Garbo, Canadian, Mary Pickford, and the Australian, Errol Flynn. So as Hollywood began to grow, it began to come under more and more scrutiny because people began looking at the lifestyles of the people in Hollywood and began to see them as sinful. The press gleefully reporting marriages, divorces, affair, drinking, drug habits of Hollywood's elite. And if you look at the press at the time, the press in the 1918s are probably more vicious than they were in the 2018s because libel law doesn't seem to have been such an enforced thing. There is a film actress called Clara Bow who maybe you should look up because they make suggestions that, let's put it this way, if I was to say the same things about Lindsay Lohan today on a podcast, I would be probably sued if she ever found it. But these were like an open newspaper saying, look where Clara Bow is now, see? And people were just loving this bit of scandal. As this went ahead, Hollywood's first $1 billion star, Fatty Arbuckle, was arrested for rape and murder in 1921. So he was arrested, surrounded in this trashed hotel room by bottles of bootleg booze. And he had been partying all night. And people were like, the horror, like rape, illegal alcohol, because this was during Prohibition. Like, you know, murder, oh. Oh, gee willikers, mister, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. People were horrified, especially because Fatty Arbuckle was a beloved children's entertainer. So most of his films, while adults would watch them, kids were his main audience. So people were like, no, this has a huge public relation problem. People were like, oh, Hollywood's taken over our kids. They're kind of like corrupting them. We need to find a way against this. So whether Fatty Arbuckle actually did this is pretty questionable. I'm actually planning to do a Minnesota on the topic of what actually Fatty Arbuckle did and how he got in trouble, but 
I'm going to leave that for another day. But it's important to note that the outcry caused President Warren G. Hardings to appoint the former chairperson of the Republican Party and Postmaster General William Hayes to become the first president of the Motion Pictures and Producers and Distributors of America. So the MPPDA had a remit to try and change the image of the movie industry to make it more wholesome and to make sure that like it was protected as well because again it's the fifth largest industry you don't want this burned to the ground. While Hayes had some powers, uh, for instance his first act was to give a lifetime ban to Fatty Arbuckle from appearing in any future motion pictures, his powers were mostly as a figurehead the movie studios were left to self-censor with it being up to really individual states to decide if certain movies were banned in their territories or not. As you can imagine, if it's down to self-censorship, many studios pretty much decided, no, we'll keep pushing the limits and see what the states will accept. And pretty much since sensationalism breeds ticket sales, they kept pushing things further and further and further saying, okay, we're going to make a really weird film now. So as the films became weirder, there was more calls for a very harsh federal code to fight the perceived moral issues. So they said, we can't base this on the states because Nebraska will let you do one thing and Wyoming will let you do another. And God forbid, let's see what they let you do in Colorado. So a Catholic Jesuit priest called Daniel Lord wrote a new film code, which he brought to Hayes in 1930, which was way more stringent and oppressive than anything that uh, Hayes had thought of to this point, giving very little leeway to the major film studios. Now Hayes, this was the love of his life. I think he loved this code more than his wife. I think he immediately fell in love with the Jesuit priest Daniel Lord because he immediately implemented it in his diaries. He's all like, oh, this is the best thing of all time. The problem was when he was, when he was implementing the code, it was done with very little oversight and because of this it wasn't rigorously enforced. So you had these rules which were very strict rules but there was no real reason why any of the film producers would actually follow them. So ironically in the era with the code existing this quickly became one of the most creatively free eras in the whole of American cinema. For instance, Bela Lugosi made Dracula, Boris Karloff made Frankenstein, both launching the monster movie genre. Public Enemy, Scarface and Little Caesar launched gangster films. And movies like Babyface, Red-Headed Woman and Safe in Hell had openly sexual themes and strong female characters. So all of these would be something that you wouldn't get away with in the code. But in 1934, many American Catholics had had enough and began to openly campaign against the movie industry and was putting pressure onto people to fully embrace the code. As you can guess, the Catholics started putting on pressure. Then a lot of the Protestants from the stronger sects began to push for this. Then a number of rabbis began to push for this. So a lot of religious kind of like tension was pushed on. We want this movie industry to shape up or die. The American president at the time, who was FDR, said, enough's enough, you have to take this code. So by the 1st of July, the code was strongly being enforced. So a lot of the energy and positivity that the movie picture industry had just disappeared overnight. You might wonder about, but about this code. 
I will just read a couple of like notable sections from it just to give you an idea of what kind of stuff was in it. It's a long document, so I'm not going to read it all. The first thing that's said in the document is no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown on the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil or sin. And you might think, oh, that's fair enough, but that means no gangster films that would show the gangsters in a good way. You couldn't even show something like the Boston Tea Party where the Americans broke the law by throwing tea in the harbour. Yeah, I said it broke the law because that would be seen as a side of like wrongdoing. And other things that were banned were like forms of crimes like murder and arson were severely limited in the way that they could be depicted. Like they almost had to be do, done completely off screen. Well, for instance, smuggling or drug use, completely banned. You couldn't see any drug use or smuggling in any American pictures. The next section is just labelled sex. The sanctity of the institution of marriage in the home should also be upheld. Pictures shall not infer any low forms of sexual relationships are accepted or a common thing. So all sex had to be within marriage and you couldn't see that because marriage was sacred. So only sex happened with marriage but you weren't allowed to talk about it. Now other things that were banned were excessive and lustful kissing, lustful embraces, suggestive postures, gestures, any form of sexual perversion, nudity, miscegenation, which is interracial relationships, and white slavery, all banned sexual practices. Now, I don't get why white slavery is put down as a sexual practice. Maybe someone could explain that to me, but uh, yeah. First, I think you should ban all slavery, not just white slavery. But yeah, I don't get the sexual aspect of it, but maybe there's something off, there's something I'm missing. Miscegenation also seems like a kind of real jerk move that, you know, banning anything interracial, that's pretty horrible. Another things that were banned were any vulgarity, obscenity or profanity. So if you can imagine, vulgarity and obscenity weren't even like, they didn't describe what constitutes vulgar or obscene. So, you know, it really came down to the remit of the person deciding. Something that you decide is normal, the film board could decide is obscene. And a lot of the profanity, meaning bad words, yeah, that a lot of the profanity that they described weren't even like, you know, the big four words you'd think. A lot of it was saying like, geez, because it was short for Jesus, or heck, because it was short for hell, or damn, because people think damnation. So it was like very kind of, you could say barely anything in any films. And religion and the American flag were deemed as things that you had to treat with complete and utter respect and could never be shown in a bad light. So you could never have a priest as a bad guy or show anything which would be religiously negative. So there's also some things that they weren't even mentioned in the code, but it was understood you couldn't have them, such as any references towards homosexuality. This code was strongly enforced from the 1st of July 1934 and was kept being enforced all the way through the 1940s. And there were other things in the code like you couldn't make fun of foreign countries which meant that uh, even people trying to make fun of the Nazis ran into problems up to about 1941. So it was pretty crazy. As the war ended, a new challenging rival came out to fight the movie industry 
and this was called television, as you're probably all familiar with. So it was a fledgling industry that started putting a lot of pressure on the movie industry because it was the equivalent of watching a movie, but you could do it from your home and it didn't cost like a ticket price. So the motion pictures were like, we've got to show them something that they wouldn't see on television. And the American movie studios also had to, in 1948, give up any stakes they had in movie theaters. So originally with movie theaters, the way things were operated was a theater would be owned by a particular studio. So MGM would have a studio in a town and the next town over would have one that was Paramount and the next one over would have one which is Columbia Pictures. So you would only have like certain movies that you could watch. It wouldn't be like now that you'd say, hmm, will I watch Spider-Man, which is, which is Marvel or will I watch this, which is DC? And you could watch it in the one like movie theater. It was the, our way or the highway. So when the Supreme Court got rid of this, it kind of really opened the way for like different movies to be seen in American cinemas, including a lot of foreign movies. And it completely broke up the American monopoly because a lot of English movies, Australian movies, Canadian movies, even like really popular Swedish movies began to be shown in American cinemas. And the thing was, they didn't have to be done by the American code because they weren't made in America. So a lot of them had like racier subject matters or could show something a bit more sexy than the American films. So the American film industry was like, oh, you know, all these hip young kids from the 1950s were like, sure, I'm going to watch this weird Ingvar Bergman movie because it seems a bit more sexy. As this happened, the American movies began to just skirt a bit more around the code saying, what can we get away with? So they began to push the limits more and more just to try and get the young people to be watching American movies again. And finally, by the end of the 1950s, Jack Lemmon released a movie called Some Like It Hot. So the movie was in direct conflict with many sections of the Hayes Code. It was actually seen as a direct challenge as it had men in drag, homosexuality, gambling, uh, racketeering, a heavily drinking Marilyn Monroe, and would be involving a lot of topics which would be seen at the time as obscene. And Jack Lemmon released the film without it being passed by the code. He couldn't really do it via major studio, but as he was independent, he just sold his movie to like many independent cinemas or smaller chains. And it became a huge box office smash. And everyone said, here, we want to see the sexy young thing, Marilyn Monroe. Let me watch this film. So it quickly made like $40 million, which back in the day was huge. And people began to think, here, if this is huge, we really don't need this code. What we need is money. So throughout the 1960s, more and more films ignored the code, with the major studios really pushing the limits to see what they could get away with. But they were falling behind independents who could release these movies while they were still stuck with this code. So the studios turned to Washington to try and find a solution to their problem. And Washington sent out one man, Jack Valenti. Now Jack Valenti had been a major Washington operator in both the Jack Kennedy government and one for Lyndon B. Johnson. So if you look at the famous picture of Johnson swearing in on Air Force One when Kennedy was shot, you can see a bug-eyed little man on the left-hand side. That was Jack Valenti. So Valenti was made as the head of the MPAA, 
with the studios looking for a Washington insider to fix their problems which had been caused by the failing Hayes Code. In 1958, Valenti completely got rid of the code and replaced it with a rating system. So the original code was like G, M, R, X, so G for general, M for mature, R for restricted, and X for only adults. However, over time this ratings changed with M being changed to PG for parental guidance, uh, X being changed to NC-17 for like no children under or including the age of 17. There was even a, like a new category added which is PG-13 which goes between PG and R. Like this really came about just because of two movies, Gremlins and Indiana Jones, because they're both seen as kind of movies kids could see, but you wouldn't want to show it to a seven-year-old. Actually, you might want to show it to a seven-year-old, but people would said, no, 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 no. There's too much of a jump between R and PG. So we'll throw in PG-13 just to give a little bit more discretion. And uh, yeah. European audiences, just in case you're wondering, here, all these ratings are flying over my head. I'll tell you the European pretty much equivalents, although they're not the exact same. G, for general, would be called U for Universal here. PG is the same thing, parental guidance. PG-13 would be called 12. R would be loosely a 15. And NC-17 would be an 18. Honestly, I kind of prefer the numbers system where you can kind of see here what's happening, but... America, you do you. You use your letters. Confuses me a little bit, but hey, I'm talking about your subject, so maybe I should be a bit more understanding. So to explain what you can get away with at each level, I'm going to play a short clip from the, this film is not yet rated. So it's a funny clip which describes what you can get away with in each level, for instance, violence-wise or cursing-wise. And it's about 90 seconds long, but as you can imagine, with cursing, there are going to be some heavy themes. If you're listening with children or you just don't like that thing, skip forward. It's going to be a 90 second clip, so skip forward two minutes from this point and you can avoid that. Apart from that, guys, just strap yourself in, listen to this, pretty good comedy, and uh, I'll see you again in 90 seconds. What do movie ratings mean? G means general audiences. No nudity, no sex, and no drugs. Violence must be cartoonish and minimal. And there may be language that goes beyond polite conversation. PG means parental guidance. There may be strong language, like shit or ass. And brief nudity, like showing off an ass. Or light violence, like getting kicked in the ass. PG-13. Parents are strongly cautioned, as in, look out, mom, here come more shits. Bullshit, dumb shit, little shit, shit-faced, and shithead. Fuck is also allowed, but usually just once, so filmmakers are urged to choose their fuck carefully. A simple fuck you is okay, but referring to the sexual act as in, may I please fuck you, or I enjoy getting fucked, is totally unacceptable. If a character says that, especially while abusing an illegal narcotic, the film is rated R. R means restricted. No children 17 or under without parent or guardian. There may be sexual themes, frank sex talk, sexualized nudity, tough language, and tough violence, like a thousand handicapped orphans decimated by a hail of gunfire. But if the film depicts realistic baby-making in a position other than missionary, acts involving oral sex with females, anal sex, fetishes, more than two humans, or what the MPAA deems aberrational behavior, that film could get slapped with an NC-17. NC-17 means no children 17 or under, period. And NC-17 may range from a senior citizen gangbang to a foreign Pedro Almodovar film. But art films make people feel funny, especially the ones with aberrational behavior. 
Okay, so those are the ratings, but who decides the ratings? Well, the MPAA set up with a board between 8 and 13 people who decide what ratings to give to movies which are submitted to them. Each of the people who reviews these movies is anonymous. They say that they're anonymous so they cannot be swayed by outside influence. The people who are the raters have to be parents of children between the ages of 5 and 17 who have no experience with child psychology and do not work or have never worked in the motion picture industry. So it's okay to release a movie without an MPAA rating. So when Jack Valenti introduced it, it's a purely voluntary system. So technically, you can choose whether to add a rating to your film or just to go without it. As you can imagine, there are a lot of people who might complain about their ratings. So there's also an independent appeals board, which is not connected really to the MPAA. So if you don't like what the rating the MPAA gave you, you can ask these people and they might change your rating up or down depending on the circumstance. So you might think, hey, this is parents deciding ratings and there's an appeals board. Look, what are you whinging about? This doesn't seem like a really corrupt system. This just seems like something that's needed. And I do agree that I like the idea of a rating system. I do think it's needed, but there are certain problems with this rating system, which we'll go into now. The first problem is they say you can choose whether to not or get a rating, but the majority of cinemas will not run a movie if it has not been rated. And it would be very hard to find a distributor. So for purely commercial viability, you have to work within the rating system. You might think, hey, if my movie, I'm going to release it, and if it doesn't do well in America, it can still do very well abroad, where there's different rating systems, and sure, I can make my money that way. But this doesn't really tend to be true, because if you look at like countries with populations similar to America, even if you look at westernized countries, like you get the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, all Western European countries with a population of 320 million, the same as the United States, you'd think, hmm, the amount of money they spend on cinema tickets must be about the same. But if you look at movies released in the last year, the most popular one being The Last Jedi, it made over $600 million in the United States, but less than half of that from the big five European countries. And it didn't make a ton of money either from Japan or Korea. And I can immediately hear people thinking, Star Wars sucks, bro. Hey, bro. Why did you choose Star Wars? It sucks. I hate Star Wars, bro. Well, if you look at the second biggest movie, which is Beauty and the Beast, in the big five European countries, it only made a third of the money that it made in America. And this actually was heavily propped up UK ticket sales. It just seems like places like Spain and Italy don't spend that much money on cinema tickets. Neither really do Japan or Korea or countries you think like which are big like that. I mean, the UK and Australia do a bit. So does Canada, but not to any real extent. So America normally makes up 50% or more of the total tickets sold for each movie. You know, if you don't do well in America, you've probably cancelled about 50% of your audience maybe more and it could be harder i mean you could pray for china but they only let in something like six foreign movies a year so good luck with that 
The MPAA is also entirely funded by the big studios. This has meant many independent or foreign movies have accused the system of having a huge favouritism towards the big studios. For instance, in 2007, an Irish film called Once was released by the Irish Film Board, and it's a story summarised by the AV Club as two Dublin musicians singing songs together, falling in love, and opting not to act on it. So it got a hard R rating from the MPAA, and it sounds like a story which is pretty much very similar to the story of Frozen. I, have been, I haven't watched it myself. I know there's a little bit of swearing in it, but I don't think it's that salty. That seems like a hard R for an independent. And the same summer, a torture porn film called Hostel 2 was released, also to an R rating. Now, I haven't seen this either, but I looked through its uh, Wikipedia and I looked at some of the words highlighted. The movie has decapitation, kidnap, trophy heads, a power saw, scalping, a scythe, savage dogs. So it could be a film about industrialized farming and trophy heads could be like, there's my trophy head of corn. Actually, I think it's set in Slovakia, so they wouldn't be speaking like that. But I'm pretty sure that's not what the movie's about. I'm pretty sure it is a disgusting torture porn film. So, this was released by Lionsgate, a major American distributor. I'm shocked, as I said before, it got R. So, you'd think, big American thing, it got like a very, very low R when you think it should get NC-17. And you've got this like Irish film, which maybe should be PG, maybe PG-13, pushed up so it would really affect its box office. And you can see a huge conflict of interest because if the American big film industry is paying your salary, they can have an immense amount of pressure on you to vote the right way. Other examples of big studio movies getting ratings that people were shocked by are like American Pie and Scary Movie, which were offered very soft ratings for scenes which are very similar movies which are released independently got like NC-17s, like I don't know if you remember American Pie very well, but the trailer has Jason Biggs sitting on a pie, and by sitting on a pie, I'm being very charitable. Now, for instance, another example of this is if you listen to the South Park the Movie DVD commentary, Matt Stone and Trey Parker tell a story about a previous film they had made independently called Orgasmo. Now, if you can imagine if a film title like Orgasmo, this is a bit of a naughty film. And the MPAA looked at this and gave it an NC-17 rating and would not give Matt or Trey any guidance on how to reduce the rating of their film. They said the MPAA is not a censorship organisation, so we're not going to tell you how to edit it. We'll just tell you this is what we're giving. If you want to recut the movie and send it, you can try again. But they're like, God, resending a movie which has been cut, that's going to cost us 20 grand. Oh, God, what do we do? But then four years later they released South Park the movie, which was made by Paramount Pictures, a big, like, movie chain which funds the NPAA. And shockingly, when this got an NC-17, they got a phone call from the ratings board who began to give them notes saying, okay, if you want to get an R, you remove this scene, you put this here, you put that there, really specific scene-by-scene -scene notes. And they were like, how come you didn't give this to us before? You know, really kind of like shocking bias. 
Another complaint about the MPAA is the way it treats like sex and violence. I know that according to the MPAA, 80% of parents don't want their children to see sex scenes only compared to 64% who don't want to see graphic violence. But there's something really weird about that to me. Maybe that's just me being super European, but if you've got a movie where someone gets out a gun and shoots like 100 people and it's PG-13, and you've got another movie which just involves a tiny bit of nudity and it gets an R rating, I think you got your priorities mixed up. I kind of think violence is a lot worse than nudity, but that's just me, maybe. Maybe you have a different opinion, but really, I think nudity is something that everyone will probably end up seeing while hopefully I don't ever see someone being shot in the head. Now, in the movie, this film has yet to be rated, which is on Netflix, and you should totally watch it. They do a direct comparison between male and female sexual behavior. So they show, for instance, a movie where it's a man enjoying himself, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and a woman enjoying herself. The woman enjoying herself, similar like timings, similar frames. Woman enjoying herself, NC-17. Man enjoying himself, PG-13. They also did a comparison of acts which are done, and, you know, if the act was done by a heterosexual or a homosexual couple. Shockingly, the homosexual couple would always get NC-17, well, the heterosexual would always get an R. And I just think personally, like, you're judging things by the act which is done. Either the act is obscene, or it's not really... I don't think you should judge by the person who it's doing. Like, if you had a movie where you had, like, a really, really cute, like, eight-year-old girl thing, Oh, hello, I've got an Uzi! And she starts shooting people in the knees, and it's bloody and gory, but she's like, Oh, tee -hee. I really don't think that that is any better than if you have, like, a soldier doing it. Actually, I think if you have a child doing it, it's probably worse. But, you know, it to me, it's just like, it shouldn't, it should be the act, it's not the person doing the act. It, that's the important thing that you should rate by. In the movie, they, like, talk to some former raiders who reveal themselves. There's... In 2005, when the film was made, only two former raiders had actually revealed their identity because it was seen as a big secret thing. And they said that it wasn't as democratic as many people thought because at different points, Jack Valenti, who had been the head of the MPAA until 2005, would overrule decisions made by raiders. So it would go into something like it's an 8 to 5 decision to give a movie PG-13. And then they would hear the next week that the film was being recut. And they'd be like, why? They wanted the... PG-13, but like Jack Valenti would say, no, you have to recut it, and his word was law. So a lot of films, like, you know, we would end up having to spend far more money because it was just down to one man, and what he said was gold. There was also, like, a lot of accusations of inside the board, there's a lot of bullying, name-calling, people pulling rank, saying, I am your superior, I've been here five years longer than you, therefore... You have to listen to my decision. So, you know, it doesn't really seem like, you know, the people, A, are given really a fair crack of the whip to the side, and B, it doesn't sound like any of them are really qualified. A lot of their qualifications are, I have a parent, that is it, or I am a parent. I think everyone has a parent. 
I'm gonna get a phone call now being like, yeah, I don't have a parent. Okay, sorry about that for the pair person who says that. Okay, finally, the movie hired a private detective to find out the names of the anonymous MPAA raiders. And they discovered that a number of the board had children who were largely above the five to 15 restriction. And one didn't even have kids. One had been on the board for over nine years when they were supposed to be limited to five years. And two people were next door neighbors, which brings into question, how do people get this job? Is it the kind of thing that you can turn up and say, oh, this is my friend, Brian, he needs a job. Well, you could be a film writer now. Dude, I can't even do that to find work at a supermarket these days. Like, you know, what would you do with that kind of thing there? Like, it seems very biased and it shouldn't be the way that the entire motion pictures association is decided. That seems a little bit crazy to me. And he also undercovered, like, the appeals process, which you'd kind of think would be a bit more fair. The people in the appeals process, he found out their identities. Most of them were either major studio heads or are the heads of major cinema chains. And there was two representations from the Catholic and the Protestant church. So I kind of wonder why the appeals board would have studio heads in it. Because if I turned up and said, here, I'm selling this Irish film that's set in Prague about two, an Irish singer played by me and some Czech girl, and we are singing songs and having a lovely time. Like, if that sounds like something that could actually be viable, I can totally imagine the heads of Fox or Miramax or something being like, I'll give it an NC-17 rating so it completely sinks and it doesn't affect us. Because the difference between an NC-17 rating and an R rating, people say, is the potential of making something like you lose, like, 95% of your audience with an NC-17 rating you lose a good like 50% of your audience with an R rating. That's why it's like so important to get the difference between an NC-17 and an R. If you get like an NC-17, many people just won't even release your film because they say, no, this just won't make money. This is because like the major people who buy cinema tickets are 15 year old boys. That That's always kind of been true that they'll try and bring a girl to the cinema so you want to sell movies to 15-year-old boys and if no children are allowed in, yeah, you pretty much lost your key demographic. Same as most of the music industry, people who buy music on average are nine-year-old girls. Now that might sound average. No, 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 that's crazy. No, that is true. All the modern music trendsetters that people buy the music from are nine-year-old girls. All the movies are 15-year-old boys. So you've got to aim for the right demographic. The MPAA since 2007 have stated that they've become far more open about the way they rate films, divulging more names of raters, for instance they tell you the top three raters, and they'll tell you the racial, gender, child status of their other raters. But 11 years after they made that statement, I went onto their website and I could find no information on, apart from some very general terms on how they rate, I couldn't find the name of the top three raiders. I couldn't find the name or ethnicity of any of the other raiders or if they have kids or gender. The information is not there. And I checked around the internet. I found like one PDF from 2010 
which gave a little bit more information on how the films were rated, but still, it was pretty much as much as that, like, clip that I told you that I played earlier would tell you, and no information on, like, the demographics of the Raiders. So, I'm not saying the information is not there, but if it is, you can't find it from two hours of searching. It's kind of reminds me a bit of, like, do you know the McDonald's Super Size Me story that there was a Super Size Me documentary by Morgan Spurlock where he got McDonald's to cancel supersized like meals? This story kind of seems a bit like that, except instead of McDonald's canceling supersized meals, the film industry just said, we've watched your documentary. Nah. So we're going to summarize uh, what this podcast is about, tell you a couple more of my opinions on this, and then we're going to move forward. So, just to remind you, this podcast was all about censorship of the American movie industry, and we explained how it had a global impact both on culture and how other films can try and be made to be successful. Like, if you want to release a film profitably, you need to make it in America because they can sometimes control up to 70% of box office sales, and you have to try and sell your movie to, you know these cinema distributors and if you have an nc-17 you can forget about it if you've got an r rating your money will probably slip so you really need to be aiming for that sweet sweet pg-13 money because you know you want the, your key demographic and that's 15 year old boys then i talk about the birth of cinema why it's in california which a lot of people wonder like why is it not new york it's california uh mostly because of edison's corrupt empire if you want to listen to a good podcast, talk about why Edison was a jerk. Listen to those conspiracy guys who did an episode called Tesla and generally explains like Edison versus Tesla and why Edison's a massive jerk. Next, we talked about the early censorship of the film industry. I mentioned the story was basically caused by a catalyst of Fatty Arbuckle, which is a case I'll return to. Again, this was driven by pure sensationalism. As I said before, the press back in the day was far more sensationalist than you would get now because of libel laws. You know, the girl I mentioned, Clara Bow, really look into what they said about her. It's pretty horrendous. It's the dirtiest thing I've read since Procopius's The Secret History. And that's also probably something you should look up if you're interested about hearing swans do stuff to people. Honestly, I think the American cinema from the start of the talkies era was probably a truly exceptional place with a lot of energy that was suddenly sucked out on the 1st of July 1934 via this code. And a lot of the creativity was stifled. It kind of reminds me an awful lot of Weimar Germany, which had a great film industry. If you think of the German pictures at the time, things like M, Der Kabinett, Der Dr. Caligari, uh, Metropolisus. Like, they had a lot of huge movies when the Nazis came into power and Good Night Vienna. I know that's not Germany, but that's a Ringo Starr album. Uh, yeah, no, uh, that really just, it seems like a massive pity. I'm not saying that good movies didn't come out after 1934. They did. But it kind of reminds me of the idea of a chef choosing, okay, for the rest of my career, I'm not going to cook any ingredients which are green or yellow. Like, of course, I could cook you something lovely using ingredients which are, like, red or white or something like that. But you'd kind of, after a bit, you'd run out of creativity because you'd be like, I just want a potato. 
And then that kind of fell apart because TV started to put pressure on them. Foreign movies started to put a pressure on them. So the movie industry just doubled down by creating like a voluntary code, which really kind of turned into a bit of a cartel for the movie industry because the, Amer the six major American studios can rate all the movies that come into the country. And yeah, it just seems a little bit unfair and a little bit like, you know, underhanded that they can decide such a thing with like influence and it's kind of like who lives, who dies via this. So yeah, it just seems very unfair. And the standards they base on don't seem exactly fair. Like, you know, I wouldn't say violence is better than sexuality. I would put it the other way around. Maybe you have different opinions, particularly regarding the way you would raise your children. But I kind of think, you know, there are certain things that maybe should be higher rated, certain things that maybe shouldn't be as highly rated. But that can be just maybe my opinion and the opinion of many other people yeah moving on yeah i think that people should base things off acts and not by the people doing the acts or receiving the acts like you know again three-year-old girl shooting someone is as bad as a soldier shooting someone it should be based on that basis and it seems that you know it's just a little bit biased and a little bit corrupt and yeah i just don't trust this i'm not saying get rid of all ratings but I'm saying that maybe it should be people independent of the film industry who decide this. And I know a lot of people in America are like, yeah, Luke, let's spend more money on the government. But I think this could actually be something that is desired. Like just take a certain percentage of ticket sales or something and pay for people to decide this independently. Make them more qualified. Make them like child psychologists so they'd say, Actually, this does affect a child in this way. So watching this movie, I can imagine this being bad or this being good. Rather than having some dude being like, Hey, I've got a 32-year-old child. And this gives me the right to say, uh, This is what, if my child happened to be a girl, which it is not, how she would have reacted to this. So let's give this movie an NC-17. Seems pretty crazy. Yeah, moving on, I would say, Yeah, just I was a system I would change. I'm generally against censorship in most ways. As you can probably, if you want to hear more of me talking about censorship of issues, the first episode was uh, Violent Video Games, Do They Cause Violence? Where we talk about people like Jack Thompson, who was trying to like heavily censor the video game industry. Our third episode is on Prohibition, where we talk about how a minority of people managed to ban alcohol in an entire country for 14 years just purely because eh, i don't like it i don't like it like you know i really disagree maybe if the majority wants something that's cool but censorship because like a minority i don't like it that's not really something i would be terribly pro yeah i mean just speaking of good podcasts you could listen to apart from my own I would like to thank Shane uh, and Johnny from Disaster Artists who gave me a lovely shout out at their last episode. I would heavily recommend you listen to their podcast. It is pretty great. Uh, if you want to listen to a good first episode recommendation, what Disaster Artists is about is two guys saying how they would survive doomsday scenarios in different movies. 
But some of the movies are funnier than others. My favourite being Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. How they would survive Willy Wonka. It's a great episode. And if you ever hear it, listen out for Joe the Rat. That's all I'm saying. Um, another podcast that you should get, listen to because they gave me a great shout out is from Paul and Jerry McCann. They make Not Another Fake Newscast. It's a podcast all about fake news, but really it's more than fake news. It's more just telling you the full history of a story. Like, you know, if you enjoyed the history of the film industry here, you could listen to them talk about the history of North Korea rather than say Trump versus North Korea. You know, it would just explain here. North Korea became this way because Prince Sado was locked up in a rice chest a hundred years ago and then this dude turned up and then this dude turned up and then it became military you know it's kind of like it's more kind of showing you where things came because history does tend to repeat itself and if you wanted a good first episode the north korea one was great but i would recommend episode 10 where they just summarize all the stories that they covered in the last year so it'd be a good way to listen and decide hey is this thing for me so Really, just listen to episode 10 of that. Listen to, I think it's episode 28 is the Willy Wonka one of None Never Fake Newscast. I'd also like to give a shout out to the C Word podcast, which is a comedy conspiracy podcast, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I would highly recommend that they don't take conspiracy theories that seriously. Their first episode is about Alex Jones. Is Alex Jones secretly Bill Hicks? So it's just a bunch of fun guys hanging around, having a bit of a laugh. So I would recommend you just listen to that. It could be the thing for you. You know, I'm looking at all this sort of stuff here that the American film industry is controlled by six people. The American television industry is controlled by five. So you have to support independent people like ourselves. So I would heavily recommend people to listen to any of these guys Again, those conspiracy guys for the Tesla episode I mentioned earlier. Yep, independent journalism is very important. Or even just listening to stuff like that. Really important to just listen to stuff and have fun. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. My name's Luke. You can contact me at scapegoatpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at scapegoatpod. Uh, you, we've got a Discord server up we've had for the last month. We've got about a dozen people in there, all like fun, cool people. If you want to get involved with that or you're into Discord, just look at the uh, description of this episode. We'll send you a link. Or a link will be in there. I wouldn't send you one. But yeah, I mean, come on there. That's a good way to get in contact. You can recommend future stories. We'll be moving on to the Fatty Arbuckle story that... Uh, if you liked our episode on Hurricane Carter, we're getting Van back for that one. So that should be fun. That's the next episode we'll be talking about. And yeah, thanks very much for listening, guys. If you want to help us out, you can give us a review on iTunes. So thanks very much. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.